He gives needy ones a home, and this is what he uh, does for us in the book of John. And John the Apostle is writing, as we saw last week, uh, he's writing so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. And so John is writing here from a perspective of what he saw as an eyewitness to these things. And what it was that convinced him that he ought to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that's his desire for you as well. And as we come to the book of John, we're going to be in John chapter 1 again. Last week we looked at the prologue, the first 18 verses, and it's been observed that the book of John is in four basic sections. There's the prologue, the first 18 verses. There's the epilogue, and in the original language, those are the same number of words, actually. And then there are two primary sections. The first is sometimes called uh, the uh, book of signs or the sort of acts that Jesus uh, does. Uh, John highlights a few specific miracles or what he calls signs to demonstrate who Jesus is. And that takes us through the 12th chapter, and then chapters uh, 13 through uh, the first part of chapter 21 are the book of uh, his passion or of his glory. Uh, A couple of other things we begin to see emerge is that that whole second section uh, really is just about the last week of his life. And uh, John here in the first chapter records things from the first week of Jesus' life. So in chapter 1, we'll see uh, John repeatedly saying the next day, the next day, or on the third day. Lots of things happening here in this first week of Jesus' ministry that introduce who he is. And so uh, the Apostle John uh, is, is telling us in all of this about who Jesus is. And as we noted last week, uh, reflected maybe a little bit different way this week, uh, John Calvin says that uh, while the other three synoptic gospels tell about the body of Jesus, if we may speak in that sort of way, Calvin says the book of John tells about the soul of Jesus. And yet in giving us a window into the soul of the Savior, it's not as though John is simply speaking in abstract terms. And what we see here is him beginning to show forth the evidence of who Jesus claimed to be as the Word made flesh. So Jesus is saying, yes, Jesus really is God. He really is man. And we begin to see the evidence unfolded for us here in verse 19 and following. So uh, let's uh, pray, and then we'll read verses 19 through 34 as we look at this individual, John the Baptist, uh, who came to testify to who Jesus is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the testimony of your word, which gives us the testimony of the people who saw and who knew Jesus 2,000 years ago so that we might see Jesus by faith today. And so that we might know him. We pray that you would work this grace in our hearts, even again today, through your word and by the power of your spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This is God's word, John 1, beginning in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, 
as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Thus ends this reading of God's holy word which we pray he would write on our hearts today and forever. No one goes to a baseball game to watch the umpires. No one goes to other sporting events to pay attention to the referees and evaluate how they did at the end of the game. Maybe there's somebody who's actually paid to do that, but you know what I mean. We don't go to pay attention to those who are just the officials. We go to see the real thing. And the Apostle John, as he is writing here about the things that convinced him that Jesus is the Christ, he begins with the testimony of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is uh, mentioned in the first 18 verses, as we saw a couple of times, but his testimony begins to shine forth here in verse 19. It is uh, his preaching ministry as he goes before Jesus to reveal him. This is a part of how it is that Jesus is made manifest to us. He doesn't simply plop onto the scene, but the Lord sends a messenger who's going to go before him and to make plain to the rest of us that Jesus is, in fact, coming. And what is it that is John's purpose? Well, his singular purpose is to testify who Jesus is. We're told later that he's the greatest born among women who have come to this point. He's the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, even according to Jesus' own ministry. And R.C. Sproul notes that uh, perhaps there's not enough attention that is given to John the Baptist. But I would say, actually, Mr. Sproul gets it wrong on this point. There's a good reason we don't really think about John the Baptist all that much. You know why? Because he did his job right. He exalted Jesus. And what we have here is the Apostle John's account of the witness and testimony of John the Baptist. And we see this witness being borne out in two different ways as we're asked again to evaluate who is Jesus. In John's testimony, we see that there were two things that were very clear in John's mind. The first is the testimony of who he himself was. 
And the second is the testimony of who Jesus is. And this is the way uh, John Calvin uh, opens his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says, we want to understand who God is. We need to understand who we are and who he is if we want to make sense of all of life. And John the Baptist's witness and testimony follows that same basic outline as we see it unpacked here in these verses. And you'll see it falling mostly in these two parts, although there's some overlap. First, verses uh, verses 19 through 28, where John reveals more to us of who he is. And then verses 29 through 34, where he reveals who Jesus is. So we're told here in verse 19, the beginning of this testimony of who John is. He is uh, someone who is, uh, uh, appears on the scene, as we see in Bethany in verse 28, across the Jordan. There were a couple of different Bethanies. So he's across the Jordan, and this will become more significant later as we go through the book of John. And he is there baptizing, which is why he's known as John the Baptist. Uh, Or for Presbyterians, he's John the Baptizer. Uh, We understand that this was the function that he was uh, fulfilling as he came into the world. And, uh, you know, we have to know him by uh, evidence of what it is that he came to do. Uh, so children, a little, little riddle, a little uh, joke for you if you want. Uh, what do uh, Smokey the Bear and John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh all have in common? Their middle name is The. The definite article. You see, he, he's identified by who he is. And uh, again, we don't think about John all that much, but it it is significant. Just another little piece of trivia. Uh, Where does John appear? Maybe more in in popular culture than we realize. Where is he on American coinage? He's on American coinage. If you have a Sacagawea coin, you remember she was the uh, guide to Lewis and Clark. And uh, uh, she had a little baby. And his name was Jean Baptiste Charbonneau. That was her baby, and he's peeking out from her papoose over her shoulder. So there you can see John the Baptist on our coinage. The point is, he's pretty obscure, right, to all of us. What is it that he came to do? Well, he came, and his witness and his testimony was to baptize. And so this draws a lot of attention from the religious leaders of the day. You see it in verse 19. The Jews, uh, and that's a term that gets used a lot in the book of John, and predominantly means uh, simply the religious leaders of the day. Uh, and they sent priests and Levites, and we'll see later there are Pharisees who uh, are, are lumped in with them. So it's a kind of a committee that comes from headquarters, if you will, to figure out who is John. And they ask him that question here in verse 19. And we begin to see John understanding more of his own identity. They ask, who are you? And he answers them very clearly in verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. We've got several negatives in there, but it's obvious, it's evident that he is not claiming to be the Messiah. He identifies himself negatively by saying, I'm not the Christ. Now, why is this significant? Well, it is significant, scholars tell us, because people in that day who were proselytes, that is, they were converts from the Gentile world into Judaism, they would be baptized. But what was striking and significant about their baptism is that they would typically baptize themselves. It was seen to be symbolic of authority if someone came along actually performing the baptism on others. So you might think in the Old Testament of, uh, uh, now his name escapes me, in uh, 2 Kings, uh, the uh, 
king from the north who comes down and he goes and he dips himself in the river uh, those seven times, right? Here he is. He's baptizing himself. Uh, But in uh, John's day, if one were to take authority to himself by baptizing, it would raise even greater questions. Well, are you the one who is to come? So he says, no. And uh, they then further ask questions. He says, are you Elijah? And he answers and he says, I'm not. I'm not Elijah. Elijah, of course, is that great prophet of the Old Testament who came working many miracles and calling people back to the Lord. Now, we might be confused at this point because we know from other parts of the Gospels that Jesus says that Elijah has come. Speaking of John the Baptist, you can go look that up in Matthew chapter 11 or Mark 8. You even see it prophesied about him in Luke chapter 1. But it's significant that John himself never claims to be Elijah. That is, he's saying, I'm not Elijah come as one who is incarnate, a reincarnated version of the great prophet. Jesus is saying there's a, a sense in which he is Elijah, in which he's fulfilling the same function. But John is showing here that he's part of a new revelation after 400 years of silence to the work of God in the midst of his people. So these guys are frustrated. Uh, they ask a further question then, are you the prophet? Because they knew from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, that there's a promise that a prophet like Moses was going to arise from among the people. And we also know from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3, that this prophet status was conferred upon Jesus himself. And so John the Baptist answering here simply says, no. Notice his answers are getting shorter and shorter as he's dealing with this committee that has come from headquarters. But they get further frustrated and they ask, well, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. See, your answers are simply not going to do these answers in the negative. Who are you? And so John answers them clearly in verse 23. And he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. And of course, Isaiah is writing in chapter 40 to people who are getting ready to go into exile. The, the first half of the book of Isaiah, in one sense, is a bit depressing that way. He's telling people, because of your sin, you're going to find separation from Jerusalem. You're going to find separation from the fellowship of God, in one sense, because of your iniquities. But he reminds them, beginning in chapter 40, of great comfort that is coming to the people of God. Because the servant of God is going to come, who is filled with the spirit of God, who is going to lead his people back home again on a very straight highway. What's the shortest distance between two points? It's a straight line. If you're playing baseball, you learn this from a very early age. If you want to get the ball to first base as quickly as possible, you don't throw it on a high arc. You want a straight line. Because physics matters if you want the out. Well, there's an urgency here to get people home. People who are sinners and who've been separated from God. And John the Baptist knew that he was not the Messiah. He knew that he couldn't do this for people. He didn't try to step up to be the Savior. And this is where we should begin to identify more and more with John. To recognize that 
we have no power in and of ourselves to do anything. And while we don't have the specific calling that John had, nevertheless, what is our primary calling in life? It's to glorify and to enjoy God and in so doing then, by our words and by our deeds, to be pointing people to Jesus. To be showing them where the straight road is that has been prepared for the Savior John is crying out here in the wilderness that there is grace on the way, that it is coming, that the Lord himself is coming into the world so that lonely people, broken people, really, really bad sinful people might be led into the very house of God and so that they might be at rest, so that their souls might come to peace with the living God. John had this great joy and this privilege to say, I'm just a voice. That's it. His whole existence was to cry out for a very short time and simply tell people that Jesus is coming. And so he's giving this vision of good news to the people. But of course, this still didn't satisfy the committee that has come to examine him. They'd been sent uh, from the Pharisees and with the Pharisees who were those that uh, were perhaps the most uh, religiously uh, zealous in that day. And they asked him once again, well, if you're baptizing uh, and you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, why are you doing this? Who gave you this authority is really at the heart of their question. Now, so how does John continue to identify himself? Well, he says here in verse 26, I baptize with water. He just kind of dodges their question, really, right? He, he's not interested in playing their game. What's he interested in? He's interested in getting people to Jesus. He, he's, he's had it with all of their procedural garbage. He's, he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one that you don't know. Even he who comes after me. He says, there's there's somebody coming after me. And then he begins to show in relative position where he is. He says, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. We understand very quickly, this is something that you don't normally do. It'd be a kind of humbling thing to unstrap someone else's sandal. But there's actually even more to it that is less well seen in our culture. Uh, this was the, the work that would be relegated to slaves. Uh, disciples would come alongside uh, their master and they would learn from the teacher. This was a, a thing of honor in many ways. And we're told, for instance, that uh, Elisha carried water for Elijah. He came alongside, uh, did lots of menial tasks before he took up his ministry. And all this was to be able to sit there and to soak. But Leon Morris says that uh, in this kind of relationship, everybody knew there still had to be a line drawn somewhere. There were certain things that the disciple just wasn't going to do. And that line happened to be drawn at untying the sandal. And why is this? Well, it is because their culture was very different. It was a very agrarian sort of place, and there were sheep and there were goats everywhere. And they didn't have uh, nice shoes like we have that totally enclose the foot. Uh, Simply be basically a a piece of leather uh, with leather straps uh, around that, uh, tying the, the sole to the rest of your foot. And if you're in this sort of culture and you're dropped into it and you're walking around the streets and, uh, well, you know what sheep and goats do. They drop stuff all over the place. And it's worse than cow pies in a sense, right? Because a cow pie usually comes in kind of one nice big chunk in general. 
sheep and goats, it's pellets that land everywhere. And if we dropped you into that mess, you know what you would do? You, you would start by walking like this, right? Trying to avoid these things. But after you'd been walking for half mile or a mile or so, what would you do? You'd realize it's impossible to stay clean. And you'd just start ignoring, for the most part, where you're stepping. And what are your sandals going to look like at the end of the day? They're going to be very exciting and very stinky. See, in our sanitized culture, we know when somebody has stepped in the dog do outside and steps inside, right? Everybody, ah, who did it, right? And, and uh, we pretty quickly come to uh, discover who it was that, that stepped in the problem, and we deal with it. But in that culture, everybody's stepping in it, and it was really gross. And so this would be the work of a slave to peel off those leather straps and that uh, the, the thong and the, the pieces that would, uh, w- the, the sole of the sandal, and then begin to uh, wash the feet of the one who was filthy. It wasn't just a problem of dust, as we sometimes imagine it. It was a problem of filth. And what John is saying here is that I've come to exalt one who is worth so much more than I am, that I'm not even worthy to be a slave or to take up that lowest of all tasks in this culture. And this needs to be our posture as well, to recognize that if we could simply be close enough to be sort of trodden in the manure near Jesus, that would be an exalted thing. And this is, in fact, what it is like to follow Jesus, isn't it? It is to be humbled before him. And this is what John was. John didn't tout his authority. He simply touted the one who was coming before him, that he was there to exalt. And so he presses on to give us more of his identity, looking uh, down in the following verses just a bit. Um, He says uh, of himself, he says in verse 30, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So he's just said, well, this guy's going to come after me. But now he's saying, this guy was before me. What what does he mean by this? Well, he's testifying to the same truth of John chapter 1, that Jesus is eternally existent. That John the Baptist is simply a created being. He is introducing the one who is the creator. And he acknowledges then humbly that he himself didn't even know Jesus until he saw the Spirit descend upon him. The reality of who Jesus is had to be revealed even from heaven to John the Baptist. And this is the nature of all of us. We need to have the revelation of God bestowed upon us by the Spirit if we're going to know and understand who Jesus really is. And for this reason, he then says at the end of verse 31, he came baptizing with water that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. Who is John the Baptist? Well, he knows that he's one who is simply subordinate to Jesus. And he simply exists to announce him and then to give him praise and glory and honor and to be a voice crying in the wilderness that Jesus is coming. It's really pretty neat that we so know so very little about John the Baptist and that he was so content to have this identity that would simply fade into the background, as we'll see in chapter 3. His attitude was that Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. 
And we learn a lot from John about what our attitude and what our posture ought to be as we look at Jesus Christ. We ought to be humbled before him as his people. Well, Jesus, uh, John rather, is pointing to who Jesus is. It's not simply about who John is or maybe more particularly who John is not. But John has come so that he might exalt Jesus. And we see this uh, unfolding for us, especially in verse 29. He's been announcing to this committee that has come from the Sanhedrin what he's not and that he's going to announce the one who is coming. But now in verse 29, we see Jesus coming toward John. He's approaching John. It's not that John has never seen him before. They're cousins, of course. But in this way, he's coming to John. And it's likely that he actually had baptized Jesus sometime uh, earlier, as we see from the the way the um, language falls out for us later in the text. But on this particular day, Jesus is coming toward him. And John begins to reveal Jesus by highlighting two things in particular. And the first is here in verse 29. He says, behold, or look at, or see, or know, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus is coming. And he's come to fulfill all of the scriptures. And as we look back in the Old Testament, where do the lambs show up? Well, most predominantly in sacrifice. And we can see this in a number of different places, but we see it especially in uh, the Exodus as the Passover lamb is slain so that the blood might be put on the doorposts of the houses. And that lamb was sacrificially slain so that the sin of the people might be atoned for and so that the people might have life. The lamb died in the place of the firstborn. We see it also in Isaiah chapter 57. We've seen that uh, John, of course, is very familiar with Isaiah and with the second half of this great book. But in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 through 7, there is uh, the the language of the Lamb. And uh, let me just turn to you and read Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53 and read for you uh, verses 5 and following. Or verses 4 and following. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray. But what has God done instead? He has laid on him, that is on the Lamb of God, the iniquity of us all. Even at the outset of the ministry of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the one who is going to take away sin. And you can imagine the impact that this must have had on John the Apostle as in those early days, here he was, a fisherman, along with his brother James, And he's beginning to wonder, what is it that can happen to take away my guilt and to take away my sin? And here's John the Baptist who may not fully understand all that Jesus is just yet, as we'll see later, uh, as, as seen from his confusion later in life. But he is nevertheless 
under the inspiration of the Spirit, declaring that this is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. And we saw that the world in the prologue is hostile to Jesus. And this is why it is amazing that in exalting Christ and showing who he is and telling you to behold the Lamb of God, that John would not just say, this is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of Israel. Who does he come to take away sin for? The world. Where do you live? In the world. In a hostile world. You are among those who are far off. Most of us here are not of Jewish heritage. This verse ought to be deeply precious to you and to me. Who is Jesus? Who who are you to see when you look at him? You're to see the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of people like you and me. This is the witness and the testimony of the Apostle John when he sees Jesus as he is coming into the world. This is the one who ranks before John. He's come in order to take away sin. And when we're called to behold him, we're not called to simply look at him and make an intellectual observation. We're not even simply called to observe that, yes, that is the means by which God has taken away sin from the world. What John is calling you to do today is to look at Jesus as the one who has the power by his blood and through his work on the cross to take away your sin. How are you going to get back home to God? How is the guilt that you have experienced because of your own sin going to be taken away? The only way, dear friends, the only way is through Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God. But if that's all that happens, do we have what we need? Well, there's more that is revealed about who Jesus is, a second reality, a second truth that John the Apostle is in amazement of as he sees John the Baptist bearing witness to this. In verse 32, we see that, uh, uh, well, in verse 31, he says, I'm coming baptizing with water, so that he might be revealed to Israel. That was the purpose of John's baptism. And in this sense, baptism is essentially strictly negative, right? We're washed from something. But that doesn't give us positively what we need in order to be able to live or to grow. So he goes on. He bears witness in verse 32, John does. He says, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And then get this. And it remained on him. It remained on him. Jesus, as the Son of God, comes into the world, sent by the Father. The Word becomes flesh. And then the Spirit of God comes and rests, dwells, abides on the God-man. So that he might be empowered to fulfill everything that he was called to do. And this was, of course, prophesied of him in Uh, The book of Isaiah in multiple places, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, in Isaiah chapter uh, 42, verse 1 as well, and in Isaiah chapter 61. Who is Jesus? Well, he's one who comes with the power of the Spirit. 
And he comes in the power of the Spirit in order to accomplish our salvation. And as part of that, John says, you're going to to see someone who baptizes not merely with water, but the one on whom the Spirit descends and remains. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Lamb of God who's come to take away your sin and mine. But he doesn't just do that. He's come to baptize you and me, his people, from on high with his Holy Spirit so that God might dwell in our hearts. As we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, we receive his Spirit so that we might have everything necessary for life and for godliness to be able to serve him. This is your Savior. He's the one who takes away sin and who bestows the Spirit upon you so that you might live. And John the Apostle came to see this in these early days that here was one who could give this kind of life. Here was one who could meet his needs. And so John the Baptist says in verse 34, his conclusion is this, I have seen and have borne witness. He's testifying that this is the Son of God. This is who Jesus is. And all of life is going to hinge on this question of your relationship to him. You got to know, who are you? And who is he? And how do these two become connected? Charles Simeon was uh, an Anglican preacher. He was in the Church of England, and he was one who was uh, known through the years for making his preaching very simple. Uh, he preached in Cambridge, and uh, when he first received his appointment uh, to uh, preach in the particular church, those who were uh, the, the sort of aristocracy in the community didn't like him very much because he preached such a simple gospel. And they thought he was too much of an enthusiast, talking about real life coming to people. And everyone back then had to pay for their pews, you know, and you could lock them. You could actually store your... your uh, valuables in there even through the week and they decided they weren't going to hear him as a preacher and so they locked their pews and they left the church and they wouldn't show up for services but lots of poor people lots of sinners wicked people who knew they needed the gospel knew that the gospel was being preached and that Jesus was being presented in that place and so they streamed in the church and you know what they did They just sat down in the aisles because all the pews were locked to them. And why could Simeon preach this kind of way? Well, it was because when he was a young man, he had been in college and uh, as he was in school, he realized that he was going to be expected to attend a communion service. And he had this prevailing and abiding sense, as he put it, that he knew that the devil had more right to that communion table than he did because he was such a sinner. But he began in his desperation then as he thought about having to go and the terror that was going to fill his heart because he knew that God was holy and he knew that he wasn't. What was he going to do? And so it was around Easter one year that he started going to services early on and he was feeling the weight of his own sin. But he also began to see more and more of the glory of Jesus Christ who is the Lamb of God That was what was revealed to him. 
is that just as the lamb, uh, the, the priest would place their head upon that animal in the Old Testament to symbolically transfer the sins of the people to that one who would be put to death, he realized that his sin really and truly could be taken away through Jesus Christ. And that is why Jesus came. And so he began to plead that God would send his Holy Spirit. And over those days, he began to experience light and life as he placed his trust in Jesus, knowing that Christ had atoned for his sins upon the cross and been raised on the third day. And that this same Savior, who had made the promise of life to him, had also given him his spirit. And because of that, he had the same kind of testimony as John the Baptist. He had the same kind of testimony as John the Apostle. He had the same kind of testimony of anyone who has ever come to know Jesus Christ. They see that they are nothing. They're not even worthy to untie his sandal strap. But that he's everything because he's the son of God. He's come to take away sin and he's come to give the spirit and to give life. And that same promise is given to you today, dear friends. Believe him. Behold the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have so given us life. We love it. And we love it because we so need it. So Lord, would you show us, just as you showed John, who we are before you. But even more than that, would you show us the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you show us the glory of his shed blood there upon the cross as the lamb went to that tree to bear our sin. But we thank you that this is not the only vision that the apostle John saw as he saw Jesus in the flesh. We thank you that late in life he also saw that revelation that you showed him of the lamb who was slain, seated on the throne. And we thank you that our lamb is still there, seated on the throne, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is here for his people. So Lord, would you give grace that we might behold that lamb of God and that we might have life. We pray this in his name. Amen.